Today on episode five of Clean Slate, New Ideas for Justice and Democracy, Better Understanding Modern Monetary Theory. So today I want to talk about better understanding modern monetary theory, which you may or may not have heard of. It's something called MMT. It's a different way of looking at the way finance and the economy works. Economists who are talking about MMT are not talking about the way the world should be. They're talking about the way they see the world as working right now. And there's a big difference. And it's worth understanding that difference because their theories, I think, have some merit and Certainly, even if you disagree with them, let's make sure that we're getting them right. So during the pandemic, when the federal government's fiscal efforts essentially kept the Canadian economy from complete collapse, two former senior finance officials, uh, Scott Clark and Peter DeVries, wrote in concern about the lack of apparent fiscal guardrails and fiscal anchors during what was the single greatest public health emergency in a century. Now, towards the end of that piece, they write, Quote, nor can the government adopt the unproven strategy of simply borrowing whatever is required from the Bank of Canada, the modern monetary theory, end quote. In that brief sentence, they're making a number of errors about MMT. First off, having the Bank of Canada lend to the government of Canada is not modern monetary theory. What they're describing is a monetized deficit. When a government borrows, when they spend more than they take in, they run a deficit. That deficit, normally you sell bonds and it's sold to private either individuals or organizations, could be insurance companies, could be banks. In this case, we're talking about the Bank of Canada stepping in and putting that money into those bonds instead. And that was actually used by the U.S. to fund about 15% of the Second World War. And it was being used by the Bank of England to support the U.K. government during the pandemic in 2020. So monetized deficits are something that have happened. They are something that's been proven and they do work. Second, MMT is not a theory about what we should be doing if we were to believe in MMT. Everything that governments and central banks and banks and business are doing right now can be explained through MMT. It's describing what is happening, not what should be happening. It's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. And third, because MMT argues that money is created in a way that is different than our current economic framework does, it does offer different policy choices with new opportunities, but also with new risks, right? There's no perfect system. Under MMT, even if you were to start running government according to these principles, there would still be jobs not worth doing, investments not worth making, waste of time, effort, human endeavor, and money. So, We'll talk about how money is created, according to MMT. There are two different ways of thinking about money. One is that people still tend to think about money as being a material object, like coins or cash, when you can also think of money as an accounting entry, as information. It's clear that most money in the economy is not cash. When you consider all the money in the economy, trillions of dollars in Canada, that money is not in the bank vaults of the country in stacks of 20 or $100 bills or loonies, toonies, even in gold bars, there are accounting entries that represent that money because that money, it's represented on paper. It's not represented in terms of actual cash lying around. In one important sense, MMT is easier to understand now that our experience of handling money transactions in a country like Canada has so much of an electronic or digital aspect. It's not that it's changed the nature of money, it has revealed it. 
because MMT theorists argue that that's what money is. It's something created by government that can be used to pay taxes. And if you can't pay taxes with it, it's not money. That's why cryptocurrency is not a currency and it's not an alternative to money because you can't use it to pay your taxes with. And it's also something people make out of thin air. Even if you want to talk about cryptocurrency and the idea of mining, the idea that you are creating something of value by having your computer uh, run through algorithms, still something that is basically money you're printing yourself. And that takes us to the other side of money creation, because according to MMT, money in the economy is created publicly by government, but it's also created privately by banks. And that is also critical. So we'll start with public money creation. MMT does not say, as those finance officials thought, that the Bank of Canada just creates money and gives it to the federal government. It's even stranger than that. MMT argues that national governments create money in the act of spending. According to MMT, the federal government just spends money into existence. Only a federal government can do this, not lower levels of government. And when that money is paid back in taxes, it is destroyed. That's the way of thinking about it. So the money is created basically every year by the federal government. And then when people give their money back to the federal government in terms of taxes, that money is destroyed. And this is a very weird way of thinking about these things, because again, you think of money as being something like a coin or a dollar. Why, if somebody gave you a dollar and you gave it back to them, would they set fire to it? But this is exactly how money was used and taxes were paid for centuries in Great Britain, where money took the form of tally sticks. Tally sticks were widely used as money right into the 20th century, including in, in Switzerland, in Europe. The idea of a running tally or tally sticks is that you make a mark indicating the value on the stick, which is then split down the middle with half going to the lender and half going to the borrower. And when it's repaid, you put the two halves together and you burn them. When it's returned to government, these tally sticks were burned. And in 1834, shortly after they said, we're not going to take tally sticks anymore, they decided to burn them all. And the number of tally sticks burned was so great, it set the UK Houses of Parliament alight. So this is not about central banks creating new money at all. It's an argument that the federal government creates money by spending it into existence through its fiscal measures. Only national governments can do this. Provincial and municipal governments cannot create money, and they should try to run balanced budgets. Of course, this is a challenging idea because we used to have a gold standard where money was backed by its gold reserves, or sometimes you'd have gold and silver standards together. This leads to the inevitable question, what's backing the price of gold? The reality is that the value of a currency relates to its ability to deliver what you need from it, because you need that currency to buy certain things, food, property. Money is not and has never been backed by gold. It's backed by people and the ability of institutions, including every aspect of government, to enforce and deliver that value, to enforce that value through legislation, regulation, contract law, the courts, domestic and international treaties, and quite honestly, even extending to gunboat diplomacy. I'm not saying I'm in favor of it, but that's the reality of how the value of money is enforced. When there's an economic crisis, people still turn to gold and its price rises out of this old-fashioned notion that that's a place where they can store their value in the same way people thought they could store their value in cryptocurrency. So people dig it out of the ground. They dig gold out of the ground with the idea that with more gold, you can create new money. And only with new, more new gold can you create new money. In his book, The General Theory, Keynes argued that you could achieve the same effect by just printing money and burying it for people to dig up. Now, that's the public side of money creation under MMT. 
The other part of it is private money creation. Orthodox economics assumes that banks are intermediaries, like middlemen. So you get your money and you put it in a bank and that bank then lends it to somebody. That since every lender has a matching borrower and since every dollar owed somehow nets out to zero, the financial sector as a whole, banks and money, aren't even modeled in what we would call neoclassical economics. MMT suggests that aside from public money created by governments, most money in the economy is created privately by banks in the act of lending. So in the same way that you have government creating money by spending it into the economy, you have banks creating money by lending it into the economy. And most of those loans are in the form of mortgages. And just as when you repay your money to the government, it is destroyed. When that debt is repaid to the bank, the money is destroyed. And the interest is the profit. The technicality of what happens is that banks create credit when a borrower offers a promissory note, an IOU to the bank. That's what a mortgage is. And then the bank creates fountain pen money in the customer's accounts. These are the two sides of the ledger. So if you want to understand it, the bank creates money in your account. And today you do it digitally with a few keystrokes. In the past, it would have been done literally by a banker writing with a fountain pen. They create the money in your account and they have it as money owed in their accounts. As you pay it down, the debt disappears. It's destroyed. And the bank makes its money on fees and interest. This may seem hard to wrap our head around because it is very different. This is the thing. It's a new theory, a different theory than the previous theories we've had. But when you think of money as being a kind of information technology, when you create, copy, paste, delete, it helps to make a bit more sense of it. There's quite a good summary of money creation in the modern monetary theory as written by analysts at the Bank of England. They write, banks do not simply act as intermediaries, lending out deposits that savers place with them nor do they multiply up central bank money to create new loans and deposits. This article explains how, rather than banks lending out deposits that are placed with them, the act of lending creates deposits, the reverse of the sequence typically described in textbooks. And again, this is a, a paper by the Bank of England on, available on their website. This is very different than the money multiplier model of banking, which argues that banks expand the money supply through redepositing and re-lending. The idea that you put money into one bank, they lend it to somebody else, they put it into another bank, which then gets lent on down and down the road. The MMT argument written about by the Bank of England was also supported by the Deutsche Bundesbank in a paper in 2017. They wrote, it suffices to look at the creation of book money as a set of straightforward accounting entries to grasp that money and credit are created as the result of complex interactions between banks, non-banks, and the central bank. And a bank's ability to grant loans and create money has nothing to do with whether it already has excess reserves or deposits at its disposal. That's the Deutsche Bundesbank 2017. A similar statement was made by the senior vice president of the New York Federal Reserve, Alan Holmes, in 1969. So we're not talking about something new or something that's changed. We're talking about something that people have been recognizing, including people who work in central banking, but it's not being absorbed in the mainstream. Banks face no hard limits in the amount of money they can create, and neither do governments. They face constraints like competition, regulation, interest rates. Their real limit is the borrower's breaking point. That's what the limit on lending is. Of course, it's odd to think of money this way when people think of money as something that must 
be valuable in and of itself when it is only something that represents value. And that's obvious when you look at cash. Cash money in Canada is made of plastic. There's no difference in real value between a few rectangles of tough plastic with printing on them, but the represented value can vary from $5 to $1,000. What's different is the information on it legal and official and serious. It is this private debt, money creation by banks, mostly for speculation on non-productive assets that largely drives the business cycle. Easy money in the form of low interest rates means larger mortgages. So real estate prices rise based on the ability to borrow, not the ability to pay. I'll just say that again. When you have easy money in the form of low interest rates, that means larger mortgages. So real estate prices rise based on the ability to borrow, not the ability to pay. And because the private money is being created in the form of debt, it is inherently destabilizing. This is the other side of MMT that is so important, that money is not just created by government or printed into existence by central banks. Rather, private banks create money through the act of lending, through extending credit. And we should also remember the idea of private money creation should not be that strange. It is unquestionably a historical reality that has occurred for centuries. And it's driven a number of financial and economic crises, including the hyperinflation in Germany in 1923, as you can read elsewhere on my blog. It is also a colossal amount of the new money being created, but 95% is created for mortgages. Financial crises start in the financial sector. And they are directly related to private money creation in the form of mortgages and housing bubbles. This paints a very different picture of the dynamics of the economy and what drives inflation and other cost pressures. It's also a colossal amount of new money being created by private lenders. 95% of it is created for mortgages. Real estate prices are generally not included in inflation, but higher property financing and insurance costs all add to the cost of overhead for the entire economy. They drive up the cost of living. They drive up the cost of doing business. When workers can't afford a place to live, they need to be paid much more. Another significant difference is that because of interest, there is no one-to-one -one relationship between borrower and lender with a banker in between. The whole nature of debt is that it takes out more than it puts in. There is the original sum that was lent and a growing claim against it, which can have fees added as well. Even outside of MMT's claims around private money creation, a borrower will face an always growing claim against a fixed sum that they received. The result is that private claims on money loaned will inevitably outstrip the economy's ability to pay unless new money is somehow being injected into the economy. What has happened over the last decades is that governments have left money creation largely to private banks and they've left monetary policy to central banks and the goal has been to shrink government, cut taxes, balance budgets, or run surpluses while lowering interest rates to enable and encourage more private borrowing. The result is a massively overleveraged consumer with over 175% of their income in debt and private debt is higher than 100% of GDP. It's been argued by economists that it is this debt that is the cause of economic stagnation, growing inequality, and deindustrialization. As a consequence, Canada and the world are facing not a liquidity crisis, which people sometimes think, but an insolvency crisis that was widely predicted, including by William White, a Canadian economist who worked for the BIS, who also predicted the global financial crisis. The other thing that's critical is that public debt and private debt mirror each other. 
This is a really important insight. It's not unique to MMT, but it is critical for policymakers, which is the relationship between public debt and private debt. The relationship is fairly simple. It's almost one-to-one. When governments cut and reduce their debt, those costs don't disappear. When governments run surpluses and pay off their debts, deleverage. It has the effect of shrinking private sector assets, and the debt is shifted to the private sector who pick it up instead. The debt that is cut on government books is shifted to the private sector, and it works the other way around as well. When the government takes on debt, private sector debt is reduced and private sector assets are increased because that deficit, a public liability, is a private sector asset. There's a chart here from Stats Canada, and it's funny, I actually had somebody say, that can't possibly be right because it looks too good. It looks too perfect. It's a perfect mirror image between private sector assets and public sector assets. Because, look, we're all in this boat together. The entire idea that there's a sharp division between the government and everybody else in the economy is a mistake. Because if you don't have a functioning government, you don't have a functioning economy. This puts an entirely different perspective on the challenges around austerity and fiscal conservatism, as well as economic recovery after a crisis. Government debt tends to explode as the result of responding to a crisis, especially financial crises. This is another thing people often get wrong. It's not that government debt creates the crisis, is that government debt explodes after a crisis that happens in the private sector. If you have a hot economy being driven by a housing bubble, new mortgages, lots of people are paying taxes. In the downturn, government costs go up with claims while tax revenue from companies and people just disappears. If the government runs deficits, they're borrowing so the debt is being shifted from the private sector to the public sector. But then what happens? If government then pursues cuts, that debt is transferred back to the private sector, to families and businesses. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, this is exactly what happened in Japan. After a massive economic boom based on excellence in manufacturing, in vehicles and electronics, let's be clear, Japan then had a property bubble so massive that their country was worth 50% of all the real estate in the world. One suburb of Tokyo was worth California. Another suburb of Tokyo was worth all of Canada. Then the market and the banks crashed, and it took years to figure out just what was wrong and how to respond to it. And Japanese economist Richard Koo called it a balance sheet recession. There's a great deal of confusion in both US, UK, your area, about what is the right approach to this current crisis. A lot of things were tried, zero interest rates, quantitative easing, massive uh, fiscal stimulus, then you come with a budget deficit with it, uh, guaranteeing bank liabilities, capital injections to the banks, you know, these highly unusual measures. Well, we in Japan went through all of it. Every one of the things that were put in place, we had to do it five, 10 years ago, or sometimes 15 years ago. And so for those of us who are in Japan looking at what's happening, what's unfolding abroad, it's like a replay of what we just went through, and all the confusion in the policy debate, whether there should be more fiscal stimulus or less, whether monetary easing can compensate for less fiscal stimulus. You know, these things are, we discussed it in Japan 10 years ago. And at first, when we were going through it, there was nothing else to look at, because anything that resembled Japan in the past you have to go back all the way to the Great Depression in the United States. And that's a different country in a different era. 
So there was a great deal of trial and error, not knowing what is the right thing to do. And it took us about seven, eight years into the recession before we realized that this is actually a different disease. This is no ordinary recession. Ordinary recessions happen because there's an overproduction of some sort, inventory buildup, or there's some inflationary pressures, the central bank is tightening monetary policy. Those are the typical reasons we fall into a recession. But the one we fell into, people were no longer maximizing profits. They were minimizing debt. And even with zero interest rates, companies were paying down debt. And no business schools or economics department anywhere in the world have suggested that such things should take place. These things are not supposed to take place because if companies are paying down debt in the environment of 0% interest rates, that suggests under ordinary theories that corporate executives are so stupid they can't find good use for the money even with zero interest rates then why should these companies be around? Companies should just give the money back to the shareholders and let the shareholders find something better to do with the money. That's the usual interpretation. And so something like that was not supposed to happen. But it happened in Japan for full 10 years. Rates were almost zero at 1995. Short-term interest rates were zero at 1995. And corporate debt repayment continued until 2005 full 10 years. In some of the bigger years, the net debt repayment was over 30 trillion in a year, 6% of Japan's GDP. Net debt repayment. So some companies are borrowing, but so many more others are paying down debt. So the net was 6% of GDP going backwards. And why is that so bad? <clears throat> well, first of all, why did it happen? It's not that Japanese corporate executives suddenly went all berserk. They were doing it because they faced a balance sheet problem. That is, during the bubble days, they bought tons of money to invest in all sorts of assets, thinking that they're going to make more money. As the price bubble collapsed, liabilities remained. So they realized that you have more debt than what you can show on the asset side. And if your balance sheet is underwater, you're actually bankrupt, right? <clears throat> but there are actually two kinds of bankruptcies. The bankrupts, you're bankrupt with cash flow or without cash flow. If you have no cash flow and you're bankrupt, that's the end of the business. You have to raise your white flag and you have to surrender. But if you have cash flow and balance sheets underwater, it doesn't matter whether you're Japanese or American or Dutch or Taiwanese or whatnot, that corporate executive will do one thing, use the cash flow to pay down debt. The question is then how do you get out of it? If public sector deficits and surpluses mean you're just shifting debt back and forth, how do you get rid of that debt? Now between 2008 and 2013, Lord Adair Turner chaired the UK's Financial Services Authority. He actually started the job within days of the 2008 global financial crisis occurring. And he wrote a book about what he learned, because he was also an academic, about how he thought the world should get out of the mess, saying, quote, we must think fundamentally about what went wrong and be adequately radical in the redesign of financial regulation and macroprudential policy to ensure it doesn't happen again. In his book, 
between debt and the devil, money, credit, and fixing global finance, Turner breaks down the failure of macroeconomic theories to describe reality while describing and developing possible solutions for dealing with a crisis. It's an outstanding book. And one of his suggestions is monetized deficits, which in a limited and targeted way is to have central banks pay for part of some of government deficits. This is what people think MMT is by itself, but it is not. It is something that is possible under MMT. When we talk about monetized deficits or central bank financing of government, it's worth talking about Clark and DeVries' perception of what MMT is, which is just the central banks financing government deficits. I've tried to make it clear MMT is much more than that. It's also about recognizing private money creation and debt, as well as arguing that government creates money differently than orthodox economists argue. MMT theorists believe the federal government just spends money into existence, destroys the money when it's paid as taxes, because we're talking about tokens here. They cancel each other out. However, Clark and DeVries are also mistaken when they say the idea of central banks financing government is unproven. Around the time they were writing, in the spring of 2020, the Bank of England in the UK was doing exactly that with the endorsement of the London Financial Times. There are historical precedents for monetized deficits in Canada and the US and the UK. 15% of the US war effort in World War II was paid for by having the Federal Reserve buy treasuries. After the war, some economists recommended 100% reserve banking and no lesser light than Milton Friedman recommended that federal governments continually run small deficits financed by central banks in order to keep the economy running smoothly and to keep it growing. It should be recalled that FDR's New Deal was not just about government running deficits to get the economy going again or stimulating the economy. It was about new laws and regulations crafted specifically to address practices that ranged from hazardous to criminal that created the crisis they were in. So let's be very clear. Monetized deficits are something that are possible under MMT, but they are not what MMT is about. Modern monetary theory is about having an economic theory of the economy that does a better job of explaining how money is actually created and handled in our economy than the models we are using because they are out of date and don't work. Before we talk about what the implications of it might be, ask yourself, does this theory do a better job of explaining money and how our economy works? Is this a better way of explaining why we have problems with the housing crisis? Is this a better way of explaining the business cycle? And some of these ideas are challenging because it is very different from the way we usually think about money and how we've been taught to think about it. But does it do a better job of describing the way things are actually working in our economy? That leads to the second part. If you say yes, well, if that's the way things really work, doesn't that mean we can do a whole bunch of things we're told are impossible? Because two of the consequences of accepting MMT may be pretty profound because MMT gives an alternative explanation of the economy that basically overthrows both fiscal conservatism as well as supply side or trickle down economics. So of course there's political and ideological opposition as well, as well as from vested interests who are making money from the current system. MMT breaks fiscal conservatism. MMT breaks fiscal conservatism, which is an ideology that embraces austerity and cuts in a minimal government because it assumes that a government with its own currency depends on the private sector for revenue. This is an area where MMT is very clearly accurate. While it is not currently accepted ideologically, the Bank of Canada established a mandate that is very broad, as you might expect since it was created in the middle of the Depression. It says, whereas it is desirable to establish a central bank in Canada to regulate credit and currency in the best interests of the economic life of the nation, to control and protect the external value of the national monetary unit, and to mitigate by its influence fluctuations in the general level of production, trade, prices, and employment, so far as may be possible within the scope of monetary action, and generally 
to promote the economic and financial welfare of Canada. That is extremely broad. When central banks perform quantitative easing, what they're doing is creating money, printing it, and giving it to banks while taking investments that are tanking off the bank's hands. That way, the banks could keep lending. The reason central banks are printing new money to do this is because, according to the neoclassical economics and models, the banks are in a liquidity trap. They're short on money. MMT can recognize this is not a liquidity crisis. This is an insolvency crisis. People are going bankrupt because of the crisis levels of private debt. MMT also breaks trickle-down or supply-side economics. The basic principle of supply-side economics is you have to build wealth before you can distribute it. But MMT states that the federal government creates money in the act of spending and that private banks create money in the act of lending. You don't have to have savings first. Supply-side economics falls at the first hurdle. Here, too, there is endless historical evidence that innovation and industrialization and infrastructure created modern North America in all its good and bad forms, often at incredible public expense and incredible public benefit. This is an evidence-based observation. This is our economic history. Now, the policy implications of embracing MMT are also interesting because while our current fiscal ultra-conservative age focuses on making the most of money, it could be argued that MMT would allow us to make the most of people. MMT theorists make it clear they don't want inflation either. They want a more stable economy. It's not about government running everything or the private sector running everything. It's about the total capacity of the economy. And inflation is one of the constraints. You don't want to overheat the economy and cause inflation. You don't want to distort the economy. So you still have constraints, but the limits are different. You can still have entrepreneurs, markets, private enterprise, private ownership, private banks. And really, MMT is about stability. And a key part of that stability still has to be discipline, regulation of the law. So it can't be and should not be a free-for-all. If times are good, then interventions should be minimal. And it's not about public versus the private sector. Entrepreneurship and risk-taking still matters. There would still need to be new regulation, but the goal is a maximally productive society where we're also giving back to the environment, which is another constraint. MMT is also a theory that is flexible. It has automatic shock absorbers built into it and that it applies in emergencies as well as it does in times of relative peace and stability. So under MMT, the limitations are the capacity of the economy, labor, capital, investment, workers, the environment, energy, and avoiding inflation. Those are all serious limitations, but they open up new opportunities in policy innovation along with the resources to implement it. Of course, none of this can occur in a vacuum, and in today's world, any country trying this on its own might face some challenges. So MMT offers an interesting new diagnosis and opens up new possibilities for treatment for our ailing economy rather than the current central bank's plan, which is to believe the solution to every problem is a bloodletting. Even when you know the diagnosis, the treatment is another thing entirely. An explanation is never the same thing as a solution. There is a final point, which is Clark and DeVries' argument that MMT is unproven. We do not have to agree with MMT, but we should question why we are still clinging to outdated neoclassical economic models that have clearly failed and are still failing. The current theories by which we're operating the economy not only failed to predict the global financial crisis in 2008, which resulted in millions of jobs lost just in Europe, millions of people lost their homes in the US, in the aftermath of this crisis, governments are across the world engaged in further austerity, resulting in cuts to services that lasted years. At the same time, central banks were bailing out the financial sector and investors with trillions of dollars in newly printed money, so-called quantitative easing in the US, Europe, and Canada. We are now in an inflation and insolvency crisis, with severe political turmoil around the world and a housing crisis in Canada. 
There are very serious organizations and individuals, like the Bank of International Settlements and economists like Paul Romer, William White, and Adair Turner, and many others, who have continued to urge reform because what we have now is not working. It may not be MMT, but we need to come up with something else new. Because, as the saying goes, the old drugs aren't working.